1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday.
0: Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.
1: Let's head over to a conversation with our friends at Johns Hopkins. We're talking about Anita Cicero, Deputy Director at Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and a faculty member at the Bloomberg School of Public Health, as you can probably tell by the name. Bloomberg School of Public Health. It is supported by Mike Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg Philanthropies and Bloomberg LP, the parent of this radio station. Uh, Anita, really nice to have you back with us. So much going on. And I want to go straight to the issue that I know is completely front of mind as parents for both Scarlett and me, which is reopening schools. Where are we? What do we do?
0: Uh, thanks, Jason. And I'm with you. I also have two high school-aged children who would love to be back in school, and I would love to have them back in school. Yeah. Um, I think that the most important thing we can do to get our kids back in the classroom are really three things. One, we need to get community transmission under control. Um, it's hard to send kids back to school when there are still raging outbreaks in our local communities. Um, and then, Two, once schools open, open them very gradually with tight mitigation measures that we know work, like physical distance and mask use. Um, And to get that physical space, uh, we may need to prioritize some kids over others. So it would make sense to bring younger kids back um, before older ones, and then also maybe those most uh, vulnerable or who need um, special attention in class. Mm -hmm. And then three, invest in research that we need to understand more about kids' role in transmission of coronavirus so we know in the future how, how careful or how tight those mitigation measures need to be to keep everyone safe.
2: Yeah, well, that investment can't be at the expense of schools because uh, they already have enough expenses to deal with and enough headaches. Jason and I are both in the suburbs of New York, and a lot of the public schools need to submit their proposals to the State Department of Education at the end of this month. So I've been hearing a lot of different proposals from schools on how they're going to make this work. One thing that strikes me, though, and I'm always puzzled by this, it seems like we're reinventing the wheel. Other countries have done this. Canada reopened its schools in May. Taiwan never closed schools. Granted, Taiwan's situation never got to the point like China or uh, the United States. But other countries have done it. There are best practices that we can employ. Why are we kind of fumbling in the dark here when there are examples to draw from?
0: There are a lot of good examples. But for the the countries that opened schools successfully, they had much lower prevalence of disease rates than we now do. Our outbreak is, um, there. you know, cases are increasing in most of the states. Hospitalization rates for COVID are now matching or exceeding numbers seen in New York in March and April from in many states. The um, hospitalizations are getting under pressure. So it's, um, it's very difficult to think about opening schools in areas where the epidemic is spiraling out of control. For those that are able to reduce The prevalence of disease in communities, I think we can use a lot of the measures that have worked successfully in other countries, and they will work for us too. Um, So that's what we should be focusing on.
1: And tell us about some of those. I mean, what are some of those measures? I mean, you've talked a little bit about the social distancing and and other things. Are there things that maybe aren't as um, well known that you've seen because you've looked into this much more in depth than most of us have?
3: Uh, I think many of
0: them people have heard of now. Certainly six feet of physical distance is important. Also requiring masks indoors can significantly decrease the chances of infection, Um, decreasing the number of students per class. And as CDC um, put out its recent guidance, uh, they emphasize the issue of cohorting. You know, get kids in smaller groups and keep that same cohort together throughout the day. Now, that's a lot easier to do in elementary school than it is in middle and especially high school when kids have different kinds of classes and need to move around. Um, But also ventilation is an important factor. I know schools are looking at ways to upgrade their ventilation systems, which really gets back to Scarlett's point about how costly it is for schools to be able to put all these measures in place. And then other... um, in Schools in other countries have put up, you know, plastic barriers either between students or or in front of the teacher to give them additional safety. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, Denmark and other places that held classes outdoors as much as possible. That is a great idea, and we should be creative in thinking about other spaces to bring children, but it's not going to be possible for for all schools and all places and all states um, as we you know, start in the hot summer and and, and continue through the cold winter.
2: One thing that parents around the world are obsessing over and kids around the world are probably trying to ignore because it means the end of summer is reopening school. How you go about doing it and the complications involved in it. And one thing that's come up again and again, Anita, especially when I look through some of these proposals that school districts are putting out, is that schools are going forward with planning and then kind of assuming that teachers will go along with it or then they'll bring it to the teachers. Obviously, the faculty has a lot to be concerned about. How scared should they be about potentially catching COVID through kids, through asymptomatic kids? What does the science tell us?
0: Well, this is an area where we still have some blind spots in the science, and much more um, research needs to be done to answer that question. Um, the The results of different studies around the world are, are mixed, um, and so in uh, some studies have concluded that children play a less of a role in transmission of the virus than adults do Um, other studies have shown that kids are as likely to transmit um, the virus as adults Um, there are lots of different kinds of studies with lots of different um, protocols that have been used so everyone is is not sort of starting at the same point so it's it's difficult to know. That's why we really need to be ready when schools do reopen to be able to get on top of any clusters of of cases um, and to track those and to figure out the chains of transmission, so that we know whether children are the index case, you know, the first case to spread it to others or not. And um, and no one is really. I mean, teachers um, are are not going to feel comfortable. I think being back in in school unless they feel that transmission in the community is under control and the schools have a, a good plan for trying to reduce the risk.
1: Anita, it's impossible to tell the future, but I'm going to ask you to anyway. Um, what's the most likely scenario, you think, for a school district that, that opens? Is it going to be sort of start-stop, hybrid schools closing, schools opening, Like, what do you think is, is most likely to happen in, in a market like New York or, or Washington where you are?
0: Well, in New York, it is hard to say. And I think that um, some public schools may make different choices than private schools do. Mm-hmm. Again, it's going to, it should depend very much on the numbers at that time. I think that um, D.C. and New York are both... Um, Lucky, if you can call it that, or through a lot of hard work, they have built up a contact tracing workforce um, that is really helpful, so that they can be deployed when there are outbreak breaks to be able to track the transmission. Um, i think say probably, the, you know, the two most likely scenarios are a hybrid approach or starting the school year with online learning um, and then trying to transition into a hybrid approach before the end of. Um, before the end of the calendar year. Yeah,
2: that means a lot of uh, uncertain parenting, too, because they can't go back to work. Very quickly here, Anita, do you think we need another mass lockdown? Jason and I discussed how if we had done it the right the first time and we were patient enough the first time, we'd be in a very different place now. Of course, we now have outbreaks locally all over the place. Can we muddle through the next school year with localized shutdown or do we need something bigger?
0: Well, there's been a lot of discussion about what we don't want, which is going back to a full-on shutdown that we lived through in the spring. Um, but I think you know we have to think more about what what do we want? Um, what do what do we want our October, November, December to look like? Um, and I think that people there would all come together and know that we want to have more freedom. We want our children to be back in school. We want parents to be able to go back. To work. And so I think that what we need to do to get there um, in light of the the number of high number of cases and hospitalizations across the country is to really um, encourage physical distancing and mask use, limit large indoor gatherings. Um, And then in some areas with exponential growth of cases, we need to close high-risk activities where, yeah. you know, in places where the outbreak is worsening, so things like bars and indoor entertainment venues and large indoor restaurants, and right. we don't need to go full-on all shelter-in-place, um, but we we can close some of the high-risk places yep. um, that would really help to reduce the, the cases.
1: All right. So good to get some time with you, Anita Cicero, Deputy Director for Johns Hopkins Center for health security. She joined us from Washington, D.C. Well, this is a story that everyone's excited about. I have to say, I just couldn't wait to get into this uh, with this gang. Chris Palmieri wrote the story. It's canceled college sports games could cost ESPN millions. He's our LA bureau chief, my fellow chief out on the West Coast. He joins us from the City of Angels. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, He joins us from Massachusetts. And Joel, I mean, I just wanted to sink my teeth into this. I've been obsessively thinking about this just in the sense of the economic implications of no sports. And as you have said many times, every story is a business story.
4: Yeah. And it's especially true for sports right now. And, uh, you know, look, like we, we all are suddenly living in this world where we're craving, or at least I'm craving uh, sports content Same. Um, and baseball got going, uh, might see a false start there. We're about to see NBA start uh, today. Uh, uh, but what Chris Palmieri did such a great job with uh, this story, it really just looks at the, the worldwide leader, that being ESPN in the sports world. And uh, what it really reveals is uh, how important college football is for ESPN's uh, bottom line. And college football seems to be really in flux right now, and, and that might have big implications not only for ESPN, but obviously its parent company, Disney. Um, Chris, what were you able to find out?
5: It's obviously ESPN huge in sports, but I just didn't realize how big in particular college. They, they took a big bet about 10 years ago, to to try to get as many of these conferences exclusively. So they launched these networks, the ACC network, the SEC network, the Longhorn network. Uh, Last year, more than half of all college football viewing was done on one of these uh, ESPN outlets. Their streaming service, ESPN Plus, has it. Obviously, they run games on ABC as well. College game day, hugely important to a lot of Americans, Saturday mornings. Uh, uh so you know this is a big business for them billion dollar business and uh and it's totally up in the air
2: I just can't believe that there are 10 different channels for college games at ESPN that that just it's stunning I mean I I actually watched cable television yesterday that's several page downs on your <laughs> on your remote control um I also watched hockey last night on cable which was really surreal um you know there there's piped in fan noises and everything one thing that struck me though is hockey basketball they're they're doing the whole bubble thing right um college sports you can you can you do a bubble and if you can't um even uh, no let's just go with the idea that you could there isn't one commissioner is there there isn't one league that can set the rules it's kind of like all these different leagues different conferences setting their
5: own rules yeah big difference between that and and professional sports Um, and one of the things to your point that we're starting to see and we'll see if this continues to be the trend but the uh, professional uh, sports that have played in that bubble in Orlando, the NBA and Major League Soccer, seem to be having less trouble than Major League Baseball, which is out on the road. And um, college has been trying to adapt sort of a hybrid model. They've A uh, few of the conferences have reduced their um, away games, essentially. They're only going to play teams in their conference, maybe one other game. Uh, but that still involves travel. And so uh, it's, it remains to be seen. I think it's going to be a lot more pressure for the colleges if uh, some of these players start to test positive, parents are involved. Uh, it's going to be a, a, you know a tug of war. Uh,
4: so disclosure that I'm a former ESPN employee uh, here, but one thing that um, you know ESPN has really uh, been able to to use to its advantage is this lucrative uh, two stream business model where it makes money not only from advertisers and it's especially lucrative demographic but then they also make money um, via the cable providers a- and Chris I think one of the things that you hit on uh, uh, on in your reporting here is both the advertising as well as the the cable revenue is is at, is ultimately at risk here and and so to paint a picture of like exactly how much money we're talking about here um and, and how uh espn's attempting to to navigate the 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 moment
5: well the advertising is the biggest immediate hit because you cancel the game and then you had some ad spaces that were sold uh, that's about roughly 3 billion in revenue for the espn empire uh but as you said, the bigger number is this ten billion a year in fees that come in from everybody paying their uh, their cable bill every month. You know that's a longer term. It's, it's it's sticky. But there was some news today. Comcast just said they are going to refund uh, people's uh, monthly bills for their regional sports networks. Uh, you know these are Chicago, Philly, um, you know local channels that broadcast, and particularly the baseball games because they're season has been cut so dramatically and so this is this has been been following this sort for months what's how is this sort of model this uh, ecosystem as people call it going to hold or is it going to break you know people paying their cable bill the cable you know the uh, cable companies pay the networks and networks pay the leagues. nobody wants to upset that wonderful little system that they've got but after months without sports it's starting to crack
1: well, and Chris, you went exactly where I was going to go next. And it's a very personal thing. I'm a huge college football fan. I grew up in the South. I love SEC football. I tune into the SEC network all fall. But I have to say, college football is one of the only reasons we still have cable at this point. And it sounds like, based on your reporting, the kicker to your, to your story, I'm not alone in hanging on to that and not hanging on to it if there's no college football. Well, you know, everyone's been
5: thinking about their spending on cable because of Netflix and all the other wonderful uh, streaming sources. UBS Security did a survey. They said 14% of customers would cancel their cable if there was no college football. So, you know, that's a pretty big hit. And the problem with that for the for the networks is, you know, you cancel and then that's you're you're done, right? It's not like an ad that gets canceled. Right. You've lost a subscriber for, for years. And uh, so that's, you know, it, what we've seen in COVID is there have been ongoing trends, pressure on the cable bundle, and, and the, this has really accelerated these trends. So huge surge in people watching streaming and uh, higher, much stronger cuts in, in, the, in the pay TV customers.
1: All right. We're going to leave it there. It's a terrific story. I know uh, Scarlett and I both just devoured it when we saw it come across uh, this morning. Chris Palmieri wrote it. The story canceled college sports games could cost ESPN millions. It's online on the Bloomberg right now. It'll be in the new issue of Bloomberg Business week magazine coming out later this week. are thanks to Chris, as well as to Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine.
4: This
0: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, let's talk a little Business Week economics and continue our series that we inadvertently are doing today. Scarlett, talking with people who asked questions of Jay Powell yesterday (laughs) from Bloomberg. There are a Uh, lot of them. There are a lot of them. We are happy to be joined by Katerina Sariva, Federal Reserve and economics reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from Houston. And Katerina, great to talk to you. I know it's a busy week. Uh, Talk to us about what we heard, didn't hear and the reaction by investors to JPAL yesterday.
6: Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Um, Yeah, so it was, um, you know, it was a press conference and a a Fed meeting that, um, in some respects, was what people were expecting. You know, there was not much uh, news uh, in terms of new policy action that came from it. They, of course, left rates unchanged and pledged their support um, for the economy as we continue through the crisis. Um, but I do think you heard, especially in the press conference, um, some more um, kind of um, somber notes on, on the economy. Um, of course, we saw today's second quarter GDP print um, kind of show the, the, the length of uh, what we're looking at um, in terms of the crisis. So you heard that from Chair Powell a bit yesterday, and you also heard him... Um, Talk about fiscal action, um, which which is, you know, timely as Congress uh, debates the next round of stimulus. Um, So you heard him uh, kind of point point to that as um, as uh, possibly, you know, calling out his colleagues there to, to perhaps do more. Right, and we expected him
2: to do that. That's been something he's been pounding the table on, or in his case, gently tapping the table on for a couple of meetings now. Uh, Jay Powell doesn't pound the table, he, he's much more nuanced than that. Uh, one thing that I noticed was there's a note from Nat West indicating that they believe the Fed will delay a pivot to in forward guidance till November. So the thinking was that this would be a wait and see kind of meeting and there'd be some action to be announced in September. But uh, if Nat West is correct, they might push that off until November. why is there why do you think there is this pressure to
6: come up with something by September? Yeah I mean I think some of it might just be that it's kind of the what next attitude. Um, I think it's some of that. Um, You know, we, of course, had a lot of activity from the Fed in the spring. Um, There's been a bit of a lull as we kind of wait and see what happens with the economy. So I wonder if if investors are kind of eager to see um, what more the central bank can do. And also, I mean, that would come at a time when, you know, we're seeing this resurgence in the virus this summer. So perhaps by September, we may very well need something else. Um, I think maybe that's, why we're seeing some pressure from some investors. Um, I think the call to to maybe see that delayed until November, you know, also makes sense. I I think it's just, it's tough. I think it's really kind of week by week at this point in terms of what's going on with the economy.
1: And so tell us how the economy looks, Uh, Katerina, from your perspective, being there in Houston. I know I ask this question every time we talk to you, but I, I am fascinated by this idea that you have this view from all your colleagues and from all your great work covering the Fed, but you're also in Houston. So you're talking to people locally and regionally. And we know from talking to folks across the country, this is a very different economy and a very different feel around the virus and the recovery. If there is such a thing right now, depending on where you're sitting.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the resurgence that we've seen here, it's just, it's incredible because of course, you know, like everyone else or, or most of everyone else, Texas locked down in April. And at that point, you know, we really didn't have, um, the, the caseload that, you know, you guys had in, in the New York area. Um, so it, it's, it's been interesting because we were locked down. We opened up, you know, fairly early in May. And then, of course, mid to late June, we had this resurgence. So, uh, you know, we feel like we've been locked down here <laughs> for many months, and there's just been no let up. I think that's that's that businesses here are having a really hard time with that. Um, I think you kind of, you know, some things some. Bigger businesses that probably cater um, to a more national clientele, um, like manufacturing firms here in Texas, have seen a bit of business and demand come back where we're seeing that. But I think the the on-the-ground mom-and-pop places, you know, are not. I mean, our our local restaurants here that we love to go to, a lot of them, you know, opened for a few weeks, Mm -hmm. but have, again, kind of gone to takeout only or just completely shut their doors for the time being. Um, So, yeah, it is really uh, stark to see here.
2: Yeah, I can imagine. And, Katerina, uh, you were at the Fed press conference yesterday, virtually, of course, asking a question. And I know you posed a question on the Federal Reserve targeting the black unemployment rate. And it is higher than for other ethnicities, such as whites or Asians. Um, What kind of answer did Powell give? Did it seem like it was something the Fed has discussed at
6: length? Yeah, I think the Fed is discussing this um, a good amount. I, I think that you've seen a lot of that, especially since Janet Yellen's tenure. Um, it is something they uh, talk about and are, I think, aware of. Um, we see evidence of that in the minutes, the meeting minutes as well, when we get those. Um, he did say that, um, you know, there in his mind, I think there's not a ton they can do he he kind of punted the ball if you will to the fiscal realm and and you know talked about perhaps more fundamental changes in, in how we fund education in this country and um you know some of those other areas of the economy that that probably congress is better suited for but i do think there is um there are things that the fed could do in this realm you know we've had economists call for the fed to specifically target um, so, you know, an indicator like black unemployment, right. um, you know, saying, for example, that we won't raise rates until we see black unemployment cross this threshold. So, you know, there there are things they could do. Certainly, they are no uh, panacea when it comes right. to the entire economy. But, you know, they do have tools at their disposal, in my opinion.
1: Well, and we know you've done some great reporting uh, around that. Uh, you've talked to Tell us about it on this program, so check out Katerina Sariva's work at Katerina Sariva on Twitter as well, because uh, she's leading the way, uh, along with the Bloomberg team, on a lot of these core economic issues. Federal Reserve and economics reporter joining us on the phone from Houston.
2: All right, let's talk politics right now, because... In the markets today, there were a couple of things that really got investors' attention. First, of course, was that terrible print on GDP, which showed the economy contracted. 33% annualized rate, so if you were to stretch out what happened in the second quarter to the full year, it'd be a 33% contraction. And then, of course, the president tweeting that the election should be delayed or could be delayed or he wants it to be delayed it's not really clear he just kind of used a lot of exclamation points but i want to bring in wendy benjaminson who is our politics editor here at bloomberg news she covers all things 2020 and of course wendy the the tweet that president trump sent out was very much tied to the gdp report his election prospects hinge on the economy
3: right it does hinge on the economy and lately the polls have shown that while the economy used to be the one policy area where people trusted him more than democratic nominee joe biden that's no longer the case they are at least even and biden is ahead so as soon as those very gloomy gdp numbers came out he suggested we delay the election to be sure he cannot delay the election it takes an act of congress And everyone from Mitch McConnell to Nancy Pelosi has said it's not going to happen.
1: Were you surprised, Wendy, having and knowing, having the experience you have knowing Washington the way you do, the the ins and outs and the the politics of it all? uh, Were you surprised how quickly uh, the especially the Republicans came out against this, given how much they have fallen into line uh, with this president uh, in recent history?
3: Well, it, the, yes, is the short answer. I was a little surprised at how swiftly um, they all came out against it. Uh, that crack in his support has been widening for a little while now. Sort of ever since the um, Republican led states and the Sun Belt and the South began to be hit with the virus very hard, people have and Trump's poll numbers have continued to decline. Republicans are starting to feel a little safer about contradicting the president. They contradicted him on the payroll tax, which he wanted to eliminate in the uh, uh, latest stimulus. And now they're finding other reasons. And it is just one of the pillars of our democracy that the election is on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, All has been since 1845, and there is no reason to change it in the minds of Congress.
6: What,
2: what gets my interest is how he tweeted it or what he said in the tweet. He said, with universal mail-in voting, and in parentheses, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. And then he goes mm-hmm. on to suggest to delay the elec- election. What is the difference between universal mail-in voting and absentee voting?
3: Virtually nothing. Some states call it mail-in balloting. Some states call it absentee voting. Um, in some states they have both and there are slight technical differences, but he, the difference is that he's talking about not lining up at the polling place. President Trump is setting up reasons for a possible legal challenge after the election. I'm not saying that, you know, the army going to have to come in there and drag him out of the Oval Office. I'm not suggesting that, but I am suggesting that he, he keeps saying, that mail-in and absentee balloting, which is going to become much more popular because of the virus this year, um, he says it's fraudulent. And so when a majority of Americans vote mail-in or absentee, and, he, and if he loses, he will be able to say, aha, that's fraudulent, I'm suing, which is also one of the things he has often done in his life as a businessman and a politician. So I think he's setting up the grounds for a legal challenge after the election.
1: Wendy, I do want to ask you before we let you go, only about a minute and a half left here or so, some striking optics today at the funeral of John Lewis, where, you know, of course, the well-known representative from Atlanta, full disclosure, he was my congressman uh, when I lived in Atlanta Mm -hmm. for a time, Um, former presidents Clinton Obama and Bush 43, all eulogizing him. There's there's something to be noted there, especially given the lack of response, other than, I believe, one tweet uh, that the president made with the passing of John Lewis.
3: Yes. Well, like him or not, Trump is the kind of person who has a personality where it's all about him. And I I'm not in his head. I certainly don't know him or spoken to him. I know that he has been upset with John Lewis for being one of the ringleaders of the impeachment effort. And I'm sure that that in his mind made it so that he didn't have to say what normal people say after someone of note dies. So, yes, you had President George W. Bush there, you had former President Jimmy Carter, you, of course, had Barack Obama there, but you didn't have Donald Trump at the funeral, At he didn't go to the Capitol to see John Lewis lie in state, and when Herman Cain died, a Republican, today, of the virus, and he got it at a Trump rally, um, there was a very heartfelt tweet, but not a word about John Lewis.
1: Mm. Notable. Wendy Benjaminson, thank you so much. Nice to catch up with you. Politics editor for Bloomberg joining us on the phone. Her team doing us really a fantastic job covering this very complicated already uh, presidential race and uh, obviously a lot of rhetoric uh, being tweeted around today.
3: I'm driving in my car. I turn on the
6: radio. Hey,
1: how about you let me drive?
5: Oh, no, 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 no.
1: Who's going to drive you home? All right, it is the drive to the close. It's a big one today, given what we're anticipating on the other side. The perfect person to talk to us about it, Scarlett, is Kathy Boyle, president and founder of Chapin Hill Advisors, joining us on the phone from lovely Pound Ridge, New York, just up the road from me here in Westchester and normally where you are, uh, just up the road from uh, your place, Scarlett. Kathy, really nice to have you back with us. Great to be here, Jason. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, Tech, let's talk. I mean, this is a a massive day. So just to to set the table a little bit, we were just uh, with our own Dave Wilson doing his chart of the day and following up, he said 16% of the total weight in the S&P 500, the big four tech companies, you throw in Microsoft, it's 22%. This is is the market right now.
7: It is indeed. It's a very, very narrow market. And um, if these tech stocks were to correct 10%, the bottom 100 have to move up 90% just for the S&P Whoa. to stay flat.
1: That, Holy you know. mackerel.
7: Say that again. Yeah. <laughs> if tech stocks, those five, FAM, right, F-A-M-G, uh if they were to fall 10%, the bottom 100 stocks in the S&P would have to move up 90% collectively in order to keep the index even.
2: Wow, that's just stunning. Jason and I were saying that we've never had a day or we can't remember a day in which these four companies announced earnings all at the same time, or roughly all at the same time. Um, Apple will be reporting at 4.30. What do you think is priced in right now? I mean, everyone knows that there's gonna be a slowdown in advertising. Everyone knows that Apple can't tell us very much about the iPhone 12, but what's priced in? What could cause a bit of a sell-off, maybe not 10%, but a bit of a sell-off in some of these names.
7: Well, almost anything, right? It's like the elephant's heading for the door, Scarlet. You know, it's that's what we tell people. It's like, you know, if they all go for that door at the same time, and you're an ant on that glass, forget it. You're getting smashed. So this is what people don't understand. These tech stocks are also in every single large cap mutual fund. They're also in every single hedge fund. Any of the big hedge funds. The concentration in people's portfolios to these are incredible. So, you know, it could be almost anything. It could be um, an overall. It could be something on the Fed, right? Right now, the Fed is driving this. Everybody is you're missing out. Let's get in. Let's stay in. And everybody thinks they're so frigging smart that they're going to get out before the collapse starts to happen. And so it could be earnings, could be uh, global, could be, you know, more China, you know, Trump. It could be almost anything that could be the uh, catalyst. Um, We have no volatility. The Fed is shortfall, you know, and that's how hedge funds usually make money. Um, So, you know, it it really is crazy. The uh, 495 stocks in the S&P, Other than these five, are down 5%. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed that out because, you know, we take a a look almost every day at sort of what's been going on year to date. And if you look at the NASDAQ, it's up at this very moment, and obviously we're ahead of the close here, 18%. The S&P barely up about five-tenths of 1%. Dow Jones Industrial Average down about 7.8%, give or take this has been the story of this market. And meanwhile, just to shift gears a little bit, we have an economy, especially a small business economy, that is suffering mightily, Kathy. And you shared some statistics with us about New York City restaurants. And that really, I think, hits home for folks like Scarlett and me and you, who make our living, maybe we live out here, but we make our living in there in Manhattan, where Scarlet is right now. It's a bleak picture.
7: It really is. I mean, and you think about the uh, domino effect, right? Commercial real estate is going down the tubes. One of the sayings is stay alive until 25, you know, and I don't even know that's going to be long enough. They're talking about converting commercial real estate to condos and some kind of housing. You know, I've talked to, at large companies and they're like, I'm not going back. So, you know, I think that brings us to, you know, the domino effect across the board. Taxis are down dramatically. Mm -hmm. Um, Uber and Lyft are are up a little bit from where they were, but nothing close to what if you don't have people walking the streets, you don't have people eating the food carts. I have one pending client with food carts and all those guys came back out and then the protests happened and they all got, they got ripped Mm -hmm. off and they went back in. So he's thinking of closing his commissary. He has enough food carts, he goes through 25,000 pounds of chicken a week. So you think about the decimatization of these businesses, you know, janitorial supplies. Why do you need to clean the the facility if there aren't a bunch of employees? Mm -hmm. Food service, you know, it just goes on and on and on. and, And all those people are consumers and consumer still drives this country's GDP.
2: Ultimately, absolutely. One thing you also point out, and it's something we should watch for, especially when we're looking at Amazon's earnings, is how much it costs for these companies to operate in this COVID-19 environment. Last quarter, we heard from Amazon that it would have posted an operating profit, except for the fact that it had to spend a lot of money making sure its warehouses were clean, making sure its employees were safe. All this expense for PPE, for cleaning, for um,
7: retrofitting your office is piling up. It really is. And I don't think people are focused on that, Scarlett. I have done a pivot. You know, my speaking business is getting the water right now. We're trying to move to virtual, but I got canceled on every speaking engagement for this year. We have events. We can't hold an event in New York City. Our people from Westchester and Fairfield and New Jersey are telling us they don't want to go into New York. And, you know, then a lot of my clients are afraid their businesses aren't going to exist. So I ended up falling into this PPE market just because I have huge connections. And we are selling millions of boxes of gloves and masks. And and the amount of money people are spending on this stuff, people have no idea. I mean, if you have a factory and you have a bunch of workers, they go out for a break, they take their mask off, they take their gloves off, they need new when they can. If you're dealing with people, you have to change those masks on a regular basis. And even if you're only paying 30 cents for the mask, you have 200 employees times four months a day, it just adds up.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's always interesting to catch up with you and get your perspective because we know you are both an investment guru and an entrepreneur. So, Kathy Boyle, really good to catch up with you. Best of luck. Uh, hope to catch up with you in the not-too-distant future. President founder of Chapin Hill Advisors joining us on the phone from Pound Ridge, New York. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And, of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or... Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.